This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 7, Episode 30, Microcasting. Again? Yes, again. Well, Yay. okay. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. And I'm messing around with the intro. Yes, as normal. How do you deal with bad reviews? Question number one, Howard. I cry and cry and cry, and then I post a link to it and let my fans trash them. Mm. <laughs> the passive-aggressive strategy. It's okay. Um, negative reviews, good reviews. If I get a review that says interesting things about my work, um, and, you know, there's a lot of people out there reviewing webcomics, uh, and I've got a Google alert set up so that I can see anytime I'm showing up in the news, um, it, news that was air quoted, the word right. news. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll link to it. And if it's a good review, um, yeah, fantastic. If it's a bad review, well, uh, they didn't like it. And I have to come to grips with the fact that uh, my work is not going to be universally loved because no work is mm -hmm. universally loved. And uh, my fans, will they, they will bolster me. They will, they will make me happy. One-star reviews of works that I love helps me a lot to realize that. I've <laughs> yes. said it before. Yeah. Going and reading the one-star reviews of Pratchett and saying, Heathens! Heathens! Yes. Yeah. I use that trick as well. Um, I look at reviews. The, the good reviews are from people who got my book and understood what I was going for, and, and they are my, my target audience. So that's fantastic. Negative reviews are from people who are not my target audience. They are not the person that I was writing for. And so if I want to widen my audience, then I need to look at the reasons that the book did not appeal to them. Yeah. But otherwise, all that negative review is saying is that this book did not work for that reviewer, yeah. and that reviewer is not my target audience. Well, that's, that's excellent. I mean, I actually, I read a review recently of one of my works that um, complained it wasn't gritty enough for fantasy. And looking at it in that light, well, I'm not writing the gritty fantasy. This mm -hmm. is, you don't read my books because you want George R. R. Martin. You read George R. R. Martin or Joe Abercrombie because of that. I'm shooting for a different audience. You know, let me, let me come back to though real quick, Mary. Um, you are confident enough in your own work that when a negative review comes up, it's because it wasn't part of your target audience. I think the most, uh, the, the hardest reviews for us to consume are the ones where somebody who very clearly seems to be in our target audience uh, is complaining about things that we then realize we did wrong in the book. Mm. But and, that is that is a useful. Thing. Oh, that's a, yeah. Oh, that's mm -hmm. incredibly. That's an incredibly useful negative review. Um, and uh, and you know, for for a dear listener, um, if you get one of those, um, suck it up and uh, and you know, learn what there is to learn from it. I think that. I mean, I come from a theater background and, you know, having a director say things to you um, kind of hardens you a lot to mm. the whole review thing. But you do have to, when you look at reviews, know what book it was that you were trying to write and recognize that you cannot please everybody all the time. Yeah. Um, and honestly, if you are not a person who can handle these things and you have to recognize this about yourself, if you're someone who's going to dwell on this, don't read them. Yeah. You know, I, I have learned that I am not allowed to read the, um, the Goodread reviews that mm. are below four stars. Right. <laughs> um, 
you know, and it's and I'm fine with that. Uh, yeah. But there was also a negative review that I had recently that was hilarious. And I thought it was, you know, clearly she wanted a different book, but she had read the book that I had written. She was definitely, it wasn't that she didn't get it. It was just not what she wanted. And she was very funny about it. And I loved it. I will say that I do not read any reviews at all, good or bad. Um, occasionally, if somebody says on Twitter, I loved this book so much, here's the link to my review of it. <laughs> I'll think, well, maybe this would be something worth linking to, so I'll read it. But for the most part, no, I don't even care. So, <laughs> Okay, there you go. Lots of different opinions on that one. Um, how can you apply all, apply all the things we've talked about for magic systems to science and science fiction instead? Are there think takeaways there, they ask? Specifically, they're talking about my laws of magic, but I think that it <laughs> goes larger than that. They've taken the cart that we put back in front of the horse... No, no, no. This put, is... But that was how we arrived at the rules for magic, was yes. treating magic like, like a cause-and-effect <laughs> yeah. science uh -huh. fiction yeah. that's... Um, hello, recursion. Yeah. <laughs> but for those who have not listened to that particular podcast... Oh, okay. Like, for instance, me, since I was not on the podcast You haven't yet. listened to all of our backlist? Oddly, no. Sometimes you guys are dull. <laughs> oh man hey, well, Mary see, I a, don't listen to bad reviews so I don't know what you just said that's a negative review that's not from my target audience <laughs> yeah and that was actually just said for comedy I find uh, it amusing does anyone, all uh, the time have an answer to the question yes <laughs> yes um, it's basically you can take the laws of magic particularly the ones looking at the way they affect society and apply it directly to the, the science um, so, you know, if you, whatever the gee whiz factor is that you've created, you need to look at how it's going to affect people, how it can be misused, and, um, and basically how it can be black marketed. You know, all of my rules for writing magic systems are actually plotting rules. Um, they're disguised as magic system rules. The first one is, you know, explain your magic before you, you, you save the day with it. Well, guess what? that works for any plot device, specifically yes. science fiction. Let us know he has this trinket that can do this, this scientific mm -hmm. thing. Let, it, let us know he has a knowledge of science before it becomes important. Let us know how it can break. Yeah, exactly. Um, all of these things, that they're, they're, we talk about this, but let's get it across one more time. A lot of things we talk about setting-wise are the dressing, and there are mm -hmm. core, they're important dressing, they're fantastic dressing, but the core writing principles can be applied to a lot of different genres if you break them down to their elements. The, the second law of magic that I have is, you know, limitations are more in interesting than, than powers. That goes for characters. What the character can't do is often more, more interesting than what they can't do, specifically the whys of why they can't do it. So just back up a few steps and look at what the effect on the plot is. You know, the lesson I'd take is from an essay uh, Larry Niven wrote about um, why known space was broken. Uh, he wrote a story called um, uh, neutron star in which he needed an indestructible hull in order to tell a certain kind of story. And so he introduced general products and the indestructible hull, hulls sold by the puppeteers. Um, he introduced uh, stasis fields in a, uh, in a different book. And then he talked about how these two technologies, um, if they ever got used, if they ever got actually exploited the way technolo technology gets exploited, would have completely changed the face of the universe he built. You know, it's not just building hulls out of these things, it's building buildings. Mm -hmm. It's building, uh, you know, building anything. 
um, weapons materials. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, take those sorts of thoughts. If you've, if you've created some funky widget uh, to do thing A in position B, uh, walk over to position D and see if you can make thing Z out of it, and, and how does that change things? Dan, they want to hear marshmallows again. These marshmallows are delicious. And <laughs> moving on. <laughs> moving on. Uh, we're going to go to our book of the week. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, book of the week this week is um, Howl's Moving Castle. I'm not sure if we've promoted this before or not, but it's one of my favorites of fantasy. And I think it will give you a, a good view into what has become really big. In, um, in children's and YA publishing, the uh, this fairy tale retelling or the fractured fairy tale. Diana Wynne Jones was doing some of these things before they got popular and hot. Um, before you know, we had the the Rapunzel that's being done now, which was so good. We had Diana Wynne Jones looking at some of these tropes and creating kind of her own fairy tales from them. They aren't just you can't see them from any given fairy tale. So anyway, um, How's Moving Castle? Delightful. Um, if you've seen the film. Um, the film doesn't really do it justice, though I love Miyazaki. Um, go ahead and read the book. Okay. Uh, head over to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. You can start a 14-day free trial membership and download a copy of Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones. Read by Jenny Sterling. Ooh. Um, uh, the next person would like to hear our thoughts on keeping tension high without exhausting the reader. Sometimes it seems books have so much terrible stuff happening to the hero that I get emotionally exhausted and stop caring. It's an excellently astute question. Um, scene sequel format. Okay. Uh, we, we've talked about it. We've talked about it before. Have a scene in which things happen. Have a sequel, uh, you know, an, another chapter um, in which uh, they, they are able to react and process the things that are happening. Fantastic that, example of this. In Star Trek The Next Generation, there's the big famous double episode cliffhanger where Picard becomes a Borg. And that was incredibly tense. And then the following episode was Picard has to deal with this. They did an entire episode mm -hmm. where he goes home to his farm and hangs out with his dad and his brother. 
and just tries to work through that it emotionally. Was, that was the fist fight in the grapes episode, yes. wasn't yes. it? Yes. We've yeah. referenced very that one before. Good, very good, very character-driven, very quiet episode. All right. Um, next question is also a very good one. Say you've made your manuscript as good as it can be. You get feedback on it, but because you've already revised it so as much as you know how to, you don't know how to fix anything and make it better. What do you do? I sometimes just put the thing in the drawer and because I recognize that I need more distance and I also need to be a better writer. And if I start working on other things, that I can hone those skills and then come back to it when I have a better skill set. I don't do this every time, but I have had projects where I've just needed to step away from them. Okay. Yeah, uh, sometimes the book that is as good as you can make it is not as good as you wanted that book to be. And when I say sometimes, I think I mean always. I don't know of a project that I've, that I've touched that was as good as I wanted it to be. Um, it was as good as I could make it. You know, I, I always try and make it as good as I can make it. But sometimes you just have to own up to the fact that art is never done. Uh, you're just done with it. Okay. Um, next question is kind of a big one, which is suspension of disbelief. Any tips on helping create that suspension of disbelief in your readers as they go along? And I'll go ahead and head this one off by saying, um, suspension of disbelief, disbelief, I view it much the way, same way I view melodrama, meaning a, any scene of powerful motion taken away from the build-up to it is going to read like melodrama. Mm. If you go pick the climactic moment of any of my books or most books you're going to just read them alone you're going to be like oh the emotions all over the place this is awful um, because you're not there invested with the characters and so i try to start with slow investment in the characters get you attached to them before i start laying on too much emotion from that character specifically now, i'm not talking about emotion provoked in the reader i'm not talking about you know you can start off with a scene that just really tugs at the heartstrings and that's fine but i'm talking about that character just having lots of different emotion going on. You're talking on. about the urban mythological boiled frog. Yeah, yeah, You want exactly. to boil the frog, you put him in a pot of cold water, and you slowly bring up the heat. Yeah. You want to suspend disbelief, give us a situation where there is nothing to disbelieve, and then slowly introduce the elements to which, uh, you know, we might challenge, but introduce them in such a way that they seem very believable. And by the end of the book, you will have boiled us alive as we have swallowed a camel. You know, and this is, um, oh, Mary, go well, ahead. Well, I was going to say, the, the flip side of that is to signpost it and just do it all in one go right up front. Yeah. Uh, a classic example of this is uh, the film about the little girl who ha whose legs are um, actually a fish, and it's called The Little Mermaid, and they tell you right up front, this is the thing you're going to have to suspend right. your disbelief right. about. That's... We're going to ask you mm -hmm. to, to believe this. Well, and the, that's the boiled frog with concrete <laughs> overshoes. <Yeah. laughs> the, the key to both of those scenarios is that the story gives you many, many other things that are very easy to believe. Mm -hmm. Right. So that you have handholds and footholds. And when that one thing is missing, you can still get by. You know, um, also, this kind of plays into one of the things that I kind of do consciously, which I've talked about. Some books are written, and I have written some books this way, to be digested really in one sitting or a couple of sittings you know these are the things where you just kind of pull someone through the story beginning to end um, and yes we have the breaks like we talked about before but they're they're breaks that are interesting lots of new questions and things and then there are books like the way of kings where i consciously say you can you can put the book down now which most writers would say that is an awful thing you never want to do this um i disagree i think that you can create big arcs particularly a big epic story 
people are going to have to put it down and give them that moment to put it down because then I can start rebuilding emotion and I can start rebuilding suspension of disbelief mm. so that when I get to my powerful moment three or four or five chapters later, you're still with me. You've probably read that all in one setting, be, sitting because I gave you the point to put it down earlier and you may have done that or you kept on reading because you knew you had more time. As you were telling us this, I was remembering that when the Nintendo Wii first shipped with Wii Sports, uh, every 15 minutes or so in between games, a little screen would pop up with a picture of an open window and some sunshine saying, you might want to take a break. Why don't you go outside? <laughs> I thought and, that and was hilarious. Worked. And it worked. Yeah. All right. Last question for this cast is an interesting one, and I thought I'd throw it at you. How do you deal with annoying fans? <laughs> oh, that's tricky. <laughs> the, the socially awkward very, type. Very, very carefully. Yeah. The, the thing is, you know, first of all, you deal with them from a position of respect and understanding that they are frequently annoying because they are excited. Mm. It's like the, the annoying puppy. Um, but then you have, to, you have to handle them in such a way that you do not encourage the annoying behavior, which is to not reward the annoying behavior. Again, much the way you handle an annoying puppy. And it's, it's difficult. Um, and sometimes the other way is to have a wingman uh -huh. who will handle being the person who says no to them so that you don't have to be. Or the, oh, I'm so sorry, it's time to go. Mr. Wells, will you please come with us? We need to get you to the next panel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, at, at my booth, um, when, I have, uh, when I have help at my booth, uh, there, is a, there is an under-the-table hand sign um, which basically amounts to, uh, you know, please come try and sell this one, sell this person something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because, <laughs> right. because most people will walk away when a salesman says, hey, have you looked at our new line of mugs? These, right. This is awesome. You should check these out. These are so cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you know what? If they don't walk away, they end up buying a mug. And so I'm actually being paid. For... <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice trick. Yeah. I, I teach a workshop, Schmoozing 101, which I'll ask, uh, it'll actually go in the liner notes because I have the text yep. online. Um, but one of the things I talk about is that when someone else has already broken the social compact, um, it is okay at that point to lie to them, mm. which is the, I'm sorry, I have to go to the bathroom or something like that. That's for the in-person things. Um, and it's, it's not something that I do lightly and, and actually very rarely am I, do I ever have to employ that. Um, but it is something to know that once someone else has already broken, broken the rules. Yeah, one of my rules of thumb, uh, and I didn't realize I'd arrived at it until Gen Con of uh, 2011, is that everybody who comes up to my booth to see me, uh, they may say things like, you know, Mr. Taylor, you're my hero, you know, you're wonderful, whatever. But in, in fact, they are the heroes of their own story. Mm -hmm. And I need to remember that. Yep. What is my role in their story? Well, my role is probably, you know, the midget on the mountain who's going to give them some good advice and then they're going to go off with their own story um, and, and do something heroic. And, and when I cast myself that way and realize, you know, the important thing about, you know, me in this story is that uh, I need to play a passing part in it. What is it that this person needs right now in order to move on and be their own hero. And you know, sometimes asking myself that question, I'll realize that the question they're asking me is not the one they're verbalizing, it's something else entirely. 
Um, I, I can't give concrete examples of what I've arrived at. Well, there was one case where somebody, uh, somebody shared a manuscript with me and all, uh, all she needed was for me to say, it looks like you've put an awful lot of time into that. Congratulations. Validation. She was happy. She walked off and got on with revisions. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give us a writing prompt. It's going to be the story of the writer and her alien fan who is just basically impossible to escape because the alien's morphology or biology or whatever it is, whatever is about them, makes it impossible for, me, for you to get away from them. Okay. All right. This has been Right Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go right. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.